Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Hey everyone, and welcome back to the third and final episode on the August Offensive of 1915. Before we hook in though, a couple of shout-outs. Thank you to Ross Smith who contacted me via email to say g'day and to suggest an episode. I won't spoil the surprise on the content of that episode, but it'll be a good one. I also advised Ross that I have something in mind relating to our VC recipients, which I will also advise you all about in the next couple of weeks. I'm excited, but that doesn't mean you will be. And a sizable thank you to Seth Hobbin, who gave us a great shout-out on his Facebook page. Seth also sent me a message via Facebook, but Seth, I'm afraid Facebook has changed their business page layout and I can no longer find my inbox. I will respond to your message as soon as I figure out where it's hiding. And an even bigger thank you to James O'Callaghan for pointing out my ineptitude as a website content manager. It appears on the website, the page dedicated to Ruin Ridge actually contained the link to the episode on Lay Salamoa. I've sacked my previous website manager and appointed a new one. Unfortunately, both the current and former manager is uh, me. So thanks for that, James, and I'm glad to hear you're enjoying the podcast. And of course, if you wish to contact me like Ross, Seth or James have done, you can do so at amhp.media at gmail.com or via Facebook and Instagram or on the website at australianmilitaryhistorypodcast.com. And so on with the episode. So it's 4am on the morning of the 7th of August 1915. The fighting at Lone Pine is still going on undiminished. Colonel Malone and his Wellingtons with the Aucklanders are sitting 500 yards from the summit of Chunk Bear waiting to attack, which, if you remember from last episode, won't happen for another four hours. Brigadier Monash's brigade has moved off for his part in proceedings and what will be less than his finest hour. And General Godley, commander of the Australian and New Zealand Division, is confused and everything is running behind time. The British Navy is preparing to unload British troops at Suvla Bay and two regiments of the Australian Light Horse are preparing to charge at the neck. Everything is in place for the culmination of this wild attempt at breaking out of this position and finally bringing the Gallipoli campaign to a successful conclusion. First up, we'll briefly cover off on the advance of the left assaulting column. Now, where the attack on Lone Pine had been well planned and prepared with obtainable objectives, this left hook was thrown together with a lot of supposition, hope and guesstimation. The officers who would be leading their troops into the hills to the north were shown their routes, from the decks of destroyers sitting offshore. From here, it was impossible to get even the vaguest understanding of the terrain. But the problem is, even in the daylight, those hills and gullies and ridges are near impossible to decipher, even if you're standing on top of them, let alone from the deck of a ship or at night. Argyle Deer has five different forks, only one of which led to where the troops needed to be. Added to that confusion is the fact that Argyle Deer is in no way difficult to mistake for Kailak Deer which in turn is easily confused for asthma deer. 
As Major General Cox of the Indian Brigade, who would be following up Monash's brigade on the night, pointed out to the Dardanelles Royal Commission, there does not seem to be any reason why the hills should go where they do. It was mad-looking country. End quote. But then again, Monash described Cox as one of those crotchety, peppery, lovery old Indian officers whom the climate had dried up and shriveled up into a bag of nerves. Fair to say, Monash was not a member of the Cox fan club. Which brings us to Monash, Australia's greatest ever general. But at this point, he was just a brigadier. Bean says that in planning the night advance towards Surrey Bear, it was typical of General Monash, whose brigade was to head the column, that he had drawn up a provisional timetable of the march, showing the hour at which various points should be reached. End quote. I find this quote very interesting. It was no secret that Bean had no affection for Monash, and the enmity which would carry for the duration of the war, culminating in his actively opposing Monash's promotion to command the AIF in 1918. The official history was first published in 1924, and the above quote, where he refers to Monash as general and says that detailed planning is typical of him, may just be an acknowledgement that Bean's opinion may have been unjustified. But that's not to say that Monash showed his brilliance during this advance. Quite the opposite. Detailed plans and timings in that kind of advance, not having scouted the route beforehand, was next to pointless. The terrain dictated the pace of advance, not timetables. And it will come to pass that when his well-thought-out plans turn to mud, Monash's ability to adapt and make things up on the fly leaves a bit to be desired. He made one other mistake in relation to this advance, in believing the minority medical opinion as to the condition of his troops. Three out of four of his medical advisers said that the troops were not up to the job. They were suffering from all sorts of illnesses brought about by the monotonous food and poor sanitation they had lived with for the last four months. Dysentery was rife, lung infections were common, and severe weight loss was just about universal. Throw in a few heart issues and general debilitation, and Monash's brigade was capable of only the shortest amount of exertion. But Monash believed that the adrenaline of having a fair dinkum crack of the Turks would get his troops through. But they were Monash's only mistakes, and in the scheme of things, even had he got everything 100% correct, there was no way he could have sorted out the more shambolic preparations of the entire column. The main issue was that there were large numbers of troops making the attack, but the approaches were too narrow for all of these units to be able to move at the same time. The advance began by heading north along the beach, but the British 40th Brigade, on the way to their part in the overall offensive, needed priority, which meant that after Monash's 13th Battalion moved out, the remainder of his brigade had to wait for the 40th to move through. This then put Monash's other two battalions behind time and those men had to jog for about a quarter of a mile with all their heavy equipment in order to then catch up with the rear of the 13th. But the rear elements of the 40th were a bit slow in moving forward, and so the Indian Brigade was also held up. At one point, all three columns of this attack were marching side by side. New Zealanders on the furthest inland track, the Australians with the Indians following in the middle, and the 40th a few yards closer to the beach. It was all a bloody shambles already. Things started to go seriously awry when the New Zealand column approached the point where they would turn left, known as Walden Point, and lead the column up Argold Deer. Major Overton, scouting for the Kiwi engineers, was using a Greek civilian as a guide. The guide insisted that he knew a shortcut through Taylor's Gap, which he told Overton would save the column half an hour. Overton argued, but eventually, with the guide being stubborn and holding his ground while the column waited, 
Overton relented and gave the go-ahead for the shortcut. You can see the problem here, can't you? The initial route had been decided by military types who understood the problems of moving large groups of heavily laden troops. This civilian had probably only ever used this shortcut for himself, and in more peaceful times it may have been quicker than rounding Walden Point. The gorge through which the men now passed was so narrow that the column could only move through in single file. Up in the hills, Turkish snipers were having a good crack. Instead of saving half an hour, this shortcut ended up taking three hours for the head of the column to pass through. It was now 2am and the main column, which should be up on Abdul Rahman, was now strung out from the head of Taylor's Gap all the way back to the beach at Anzac Cove. What the situation needed was someone resolute to lead the way. Unfortunately, the commander of this column was Monash and he was stuck in the middle of the column. Not his fault though, he'd been ordered by Cox to march in the middle. Now with everything quickly turning to shit, he had no idea of what was going on up front or behind. He sent officers forward to see what was happening, but none made it back to enlighten the frustrated brigadier. He was eventually able to get permission from Cox to go forward and try to sort things out. When he arrived, the CO of the 13th Battalion, Colonel Tilney, was deep in discussion with Overton as to what they should do. Monash basically did his nut and ordered Tilney to get a move on. He then led the first two platoons forward himself into what was later known as Australia Valley. The moon had risen by this point and the Turks now had a pretty good view of their targets. Now the second and most damaging outcome of the shortcut began to play out. Keep in mind that no officer had done any sort of recon on this part of the approach. Why would they? According to the plan, they shouldn't have been there. But now that they were, Monash had to figure out where each of his battalions should peel off to follow their particular ridges up to the objective. In the dark, with gullies and ridges going off in all sorts of weird directions, it appears that Monash got geographically embarrassed and sent his 13th and 14th battalions off the main track about 700 yards too soon. The 15th and 16th battalions were sent off onto what Monash thought was Argyll Deer, and when dawn began to break, their respective commanders thought that they were more or less where they were supposed to be, that being Abdul Rahman. Actually, they were on Kayajak Spur. Major Ablinson of the Gurkhas had been told to go forward and support Monash's push. Upon arrival, Allenson states he found Monash in a poor state, running around saying, I thought I could command men, and the operation's a hopeless mess. No other witnesses reported Monash behaving in such a manner, so chances are Allenson, who had a poor opinion of colonials, was just gilding the lily a little bit. But you'd have to say that Monash was well within his rights to be lamenting the position he now found himself in. His troops, who were in poor condition before this thing even began, were exhausted by the climb, and all they wanted to do was lie down and have a kip. Monash wanted to dig in, and when Cox finally arrived at the pointy end, the two men had a heated discussion about Cox's desire for Monash to attack Surrey Bear. Monash won out in the end, pointing out that his men were buggered. They couldn't take the hill in their current condition. So, they dug in. So we'll leave Monash and the left assaulting column there. If you thought that was farcical, then you're going to love this next bit. The landing of the British troops at Suvla Bay. I won't go into too much detail on this for two main reasons. One, apart from the small group of naval engineers, there were no Australians involved. And two, the troops involved did the best they could, so subjecting them to ridicule would be rather unfair. But as this landing was believed by many to be the main point of this whole offensive, I'll give it a brief account. It's also a good example of why the British hierarchy 
was often subject to so much scorn during the war. There were many good British generals, but the British military's insistence on things such as protocol and seniority threw up too many men like Freddie Stockford. On the topic of Sir Frederick Stockford, Les Carline in his book on Gallipoli pretty much nails it. He says that by the time of the Great War, Stockford's fire had long burnt out, if it had ever burnt at all. On the morning of the 7th of August, he was in charge of an amphibious landing of 20,000 men on a hostile shore in the dark. And this was his first ever battle. A bloke would be keyed up, excited, champing at the bit to make this thing a success. And up to a point, he was kind of keen. Hamilton wanted him to stay on the island of Imbros during the landing so that he could maintain communications. But no, Freddie wanted to be close to his troops. Huzzah! So he boarded the sloop Jonquil, which was big enough to carry his general staff, but not his administrative staff. They'd be on another yacht. Surely that wouldn't be an issue, would it? They arrived off Seville Bay shortly after midnight, and a small amount of rifle fire could be heard. Huzzah again! The troops must be ashore. And, with no more information as to what was actually happening on shore, Stopford had a mattress laid out on the deck, it was too hot in the cabin, and he went to sleep. Yep, the most important military operation of his entire career, and he slept through most of it. To cut a long story short, the Suvla landing was a mess, but it could have been the winning stroke everyone hoped it would be. The hills which the troops were supposed to seize with all haste were, at this stage, hardly defended. But confusion, delays, lack of leadership from the man in charge meant that the push into the hills never really got underway. By the time any real threatening movement was made towards the hills, the Turks had seen the threat and now had the troops in place to meet it. General Hamilton, who was supposed to be advised of when the landing had been successfully completed, heard nothing until long after sunrise. He sent cables to Stopford, who had by now woken up, feeling rested except for a sore knee, and asking him what was happening. Stopford advised that his troops were on the beaches and all was under control. But Hamilton knew by this stage the troops should have been long past the beaches and up into the hills. He asked Stopford why he hadn't advanced and in one of those things he couldn't make up if he tried, Stopford responded with, The Turks are inclined to be aggressive. Eventually, Hamilton lost his usual calm temper and sailed to Suvla himself to see if he could put a bomb under Stopford and get this thing moving. But by that stage it was too late, and just like the landings at Cape Hellas and Anzac on the 20th of April, the Suvla landing was stopped well short of achieving anything of importance. So that's the farce taken care of. Now for the tragedy. While the British were loitering at Suvla, Monash was digging in short of his objective, and Colonel Malone and his New Zealanders were wondering whether to attack Chinook Bear. The 8th and 10th Australian Light Horse Regiments were preparing for their charge at the Neck. Now I'm gathering that if you're tuning into this podcast, then you've probably watched the fantastic Aussie movie called Gallipoli, starring Mark Lee and some Gibson bloke. It's a pretty good depiction, but there are some minor historical inaccuracies, so try not to be distracted by those as we're going through. But having said that, if you haven't seen the film, then when you're done here, go and watch it. It does a great job of showing the human face of this attack. As we go through this horrific event, keep in mind that one of the prerequisites for this attack was supposed to have been the capture of Chanak Bear. As the light horsemen were charging, the Kiwis were supposed to be charging down the slope towards Baby 700 at the same time. But as we know, the Kiwis hadn't even come close to taking Chanak Bear. The charge at the neck should never have gone ahead. 
In fact, General Birdwood himself has stated that an unaided attack across the neck towards Baby 700 was, quote, almost hopeless. The Australian Light Horse Regiments were mounted infantry. This meant that they would generally ride their horses to the allotted time and place, dismount and then fight on foot as infantry. The benefits of this are obvious. The troops arrive at the front in good nick, not having flogged themselves to exhaustion by stomping miles on foot. But the train at Gallipoli meant that there was no need for horse-borne troops. So when the landing occurred, the light horse remained in Egypt. But by late May, it was realised that even though the horses would be of little use, the men themselves could be better used on the peninsula than swanning around the pyramids. And so the light horse, dismounted, arrived in the fly-blown trenches. No doubt a bit of good-natured piss-taking from the infantry would have been indulged, but in general, the infantry were happy to have the light horse on board. The 3rd Light Horse Brigade, consisting of the 8th and 9th Regiments from Victoria and the 10th from Western Australia, were assigned the role of attacking at the neck. The charge would be made by the 8th and the 10th, with the 9th in reserve. In charge of the brigade was Brigadier Frederick Hughes. Hughes wasn't much of a soldier, to be honest. He liked the pomp and ceremony and the uniforms and all of that, and, as an officer once told Charles Bean, in time of war, as in peace, our brigadier's idea of soldiering was to salute smartly, roll the great cake correctly, and note the march discipline. End quote. But of actual soldiering, he probably attended the Freddie Stockford school of looking good, but being essentially useless. The true power in the brigade was Hughes's brigade major, basically his 2IC, Lieutenant Colonel Jack Antle. Antle was a veteran of the Boer War and showed much promise, although he tended towards the reckless but glorious action. This would not bode well for his brigade. Unfortunately, his abrasive nature had inhibited his rise through the ranks, and he appeared somewhat embittered by this. By the time 1915 rocked around, he was set in his ways. He tended to bully his subordinates into submission, so much so that he became known as Bull Antle, and he went about his soldering in a mechanical, by-the-book kind of way. He wasn't prone to adapting to the conditions. This would also not bode well for his brigade. The neck was a narrow saddle of land which connected Russell's Top to Baby 700. It was about 50 metres across, so about the length of an Olympic swimming pool. The Turks had attacked down this piece of land on the 30th of June, only a month or so beforehand, and had been slaughtered. Now the 8th and 10th Light Horse were expected to attack up this same piece of ground. It was so narrow, in fact, that not only could the two attacking regiments not go forward at the same time, each regiment was unable to go forward in its entirety at the same time. The front only allowed 150 men to attack at any one time. This meant the attack would need to be carried out by four separate waves of troops. I'll only give a brief outline of the plan, because really, the plan lasted about a nanosecond after the first whistle was blown. The first wave, from the 8th Regiment, would rush forward and seize the trenches with bayonets and bombs. The second would sweep on past those trenches and take the next line of trenches at the base of Baby 700. The third would then push even further and the fourth would bring forward the picks and shovels in order to dig in on their newly won positions. The first wave would be preceded by a strong artillery barrage which it hoped would give the Turkish defenders a few headaches and make them a bit groggy and unable to respond as the Victorians rushed forward. It sounds simple enough, but the problem is all those involved in the planning, mainly Hughes, Antle and the overall commander, General Godley, didn't really put much more thought into it than that. Godley had been ordered to take the trenches. He ordered Hughes, who in turn ordered Antle. 
Each of these men were resolutely stuck in the old world. They felt this whole thing could be taken at the point of the bayonet. The troops were actually forbidden to have their rifles loaded. Just let that sink in for a minute. What difference would it have made if they had a round up the spout and five in the magazine? There'd still be nice shiny bayonets flashing around to provide that old school spectacle, but at least the men would be able to fire at the Turks if the need arose. Dash and determination was what would win the day for them, according to Antil in his message to the troops. For their part, the men were keen. They'd never been in a big attack before. They'd missed out on the scenes of slaughter during the landings, the Turkish attacks in May and again in June. They had no real idea of what they were in for. And so, in the way of naive young blokes, they were looking forward to it, at least outwardly. Many actually hid illnesses and minor wounds which would have precluded them from participating. And so, in the wee small hours of the 7th of August, the men shivered in their trenches, waiting. A tot of rum at around 3am warmed them up a bit and probably gave some of the younger ones a bit of Dutch courage. Personal items were to be left behind and the men would carry 200 rounds, none in the rifle remember, a water bottle, a field dressing, two empty sandbags and a field dressing. Other equipment such as wire cutters, periscopes, scaling ladders etc were to be shared out among them. Each line would carry four red and yellow marker flags which would be thrust into the ground to indicate that each trench had been taken. These markers would play their own part in what was coming. The barrage opened up and it sounded like it meant business. Bean reckoned it was probably the heaviest he'd heard up to that point. It sounded good, threw up lots of dust, but in reality it wasn't all that it was cracked up to be. The heavy stuff, normally fired from battleships offshore, couldn't be used due to the closeness of the trenches. The field artillery pieces couldn't really smash trenches, nor could they really achieve sufficient trajectory to lob shells into the first trenches. The dust may have been of some assistance to conceal the advancing troops, had it still been hanging around at the time the first wave charged. But for reasons which have remained a mystery ever since, the artillery stopped seven minutes prior to the hopover at 4.30am. It was probably something as simple as poor synchronisation of watches. Not that the reason really matters. Whatever the reason was, the light horsemen were now on the path to destruction. The Turks made good use of the delay, packing themselves too deep into the trench with the rear rank pushing their rifle muzzles between those in front. Machine gunners in the hills and to each flank got themselves ready, and the light horsemen waited. One later wrote home to his mother stating that at this point they knew they were all doomed. It has been a constant mystery to me, having established that some kind of faux pas had occurred, why didn't somebody say, oh bugger, there's been a mix-up, how about getting those guns to give another five minutes and then we'll all go when they're done. It would seem the logical thing to do. But as I said before, Jack Antill, who was now basically running this part of the show, was a man who did things by the book, as ordered. No change of plan was considered. So despite all the indications that this wasn't going to go well, Antill ordered Lieutenant Colonel Alexander White of the 8th Light Horse to charge at 4.30am sharp. Knowing exactly what was about to happen, White decided to lead the first wave himself. Probably not the wisest course of action from a military standpoint, as the commander should probably stay alive to conduct the rest of the fight. But you've got to admire the bloke. He wasn't going to send his troops to their deaths without sharing the risk himself. He said a curt goodbye to Antil and took his place in the line. Along with the men of the first wave, White stood and waited those painfully long couple of minutes. Looking down at his watch, as the second hand made its way around the face, 
At exactly 4.30am, he yelled, Go! And all hell broke loose. Brave Lieutenant Colonel White advanced a grand total of about 10 yards before he was mown down. Most of his troops didn't even get that far. As soon as the first heads showed above the parapet, the Turkish machine guns opened fire. Many men fell back into the trench, dead or wounded. Those who did make it into the open were wiped out within 30 seconds. One survivor, Sergeant Cliff Pinnock, described his charge. I was in the first line to advance, and we did not get 10 yards. Everyone fell like lumps of meat. All your pals that have been with you for months and months, blown and shot out of all recognition. I got mine shortly after I got over the bank, and it felt like a million-ton hammer falling on my shoulder. However, I managed to crawl back and got it temporarily fixed up till they carried me to the base hospital. I was awfully lucky as the bullet went in just below the shoulder blade, round about my throat, and came out just a tiny way from my spine, very low down in the back. It was simply murder. End quote. The firing from the Turkish trenches was so loud that even the men fighting at Lone Pine had to shout to be heard over it. Bean called it one continuous roaring tempest. But a marker flag had made it all the way into the Turkish trench. As one observer stated, all it signified was that someone, ever briefly, had beaten the odds. It was evidence of grit and luck, not occupation. And that's where the attack at the neck should have stopped. At Quinn's post at around the same time, a similar charge was made, with the first wave being wiped out. The commanders there conferred with Harry Chevelle in overall command of the Light Horse, and the following waves were cancelled. Maybe if White had decided not to go with the first wave, he could have influenced his superiors in the same way. But unfortunately, he was now lying dead in no man's land. At the neck, in precise accordance with the plan, the second wave poured over the top exactly two minutes after the first wave. Those men got no further than the first wave had. In two and a half minutes, the 8th Light Horse Regiment had been destroyed. You can hardly imagine then what the troops of the 10th Light Horse would have been thinking as they filed into the trenches. The dead and wounded of the 8th were lying there, the trench walls splattered with their blood. The cries and moans of the wounded would have been coming in from no man's land and the 10th knew that they too would soon be lying out there. Or would they? Colonel Brazier of the 10th had seen the carnage of the 8th. He knew it was pointless, so he contacted Antil. Even at the best of times, these two men despised each other. And now, from Antil's perspective, here's this subordinate officer telling him that the attack is pointless. But the plan said the third wave must go. And, as we know, Antil didn't change plans. And by God, a marker flag had been seen in the Turkish trench. So obviously it was possible to get there. And so he shouted those prophetic words at Brazier. Push on. Brazier returned to the trench and told his men that he was sorry, but the order was to go. Trooper Harold Rush turned to his mate and said, Goodbye, Cobber. God bless you. If you're ever visiting the Gallipoli Peninsula, check out Trooper Rush's grave. Those were his last words and are forever etched onto his tombstone. At 4.45, in Bean's words, the 10th went forward to meet death instantly. Just like the first two waves, the third wave was destroyed within seconds. Major Todd of the 10th went to ground in no man's land. He managed to scribble a message on a piece of paper which he somehow managed to get back to Brazier in the trench. Brazier took that message to Antil, but the old bull wouldn't listen. He again told Brazier to push on. 
Brazier then tracked down Hughes, the bloke who was actually in charge, and told him the situation. Hughes suggested changing the point of attack down Bully Beef Sap. But even that would be pointless. What were 150 men going to achieve, even if they could make it into the Turkish trenches? But the debate is pointless, because while Brazier was making his attempt to call off the fourth wave, for reasons which have never been discovered, the troops on the right of the fourth wave charged, without orders. Major Scott knew that Brazier was trying to halt the slaughter, but seeing their mates on the right go over, many others followed, and soon the fourth wave added to the pile of corpses. And so the madness at the neck ended. The lucky ones had been wounded while getting out of the trench and fell back in, or were able to crawl back a short distance. They would have been quickly treated and sent on to the aid posts. The next luckiest were those who were killed outright. Their suffering was over. But for many, the unluckiest of all, were those who were wounded and fell in no man's land. As the sun rose higher into the sky, the temperature rose, and those wounded men drank the last of their water, and then baked all day under the hot sun. Being recalled, At first, here and there, a man raised his arm to the sky, or tried to drink from his water bottle. But as soon as the sun of that burning day climbed higher, such movements ceased. Over the whole summit, the figures lay still, quivering in the heat. The attack of the neck raises so many questions, but for me, the one that always gets me is why. Why did the men in the second, third and fourth waves go when they knew it was near certain death? Sure, there were orders, and soldiers follow orders, but they also have a survival instinct. Not a single man was reported as refusing to go over. The best I can figure is that either their mates were going, so they were going to go as well. And also, maybe they thought that sacrificing themselves here would ensure that the Turks in front of them wouldn't be deployed elsewhere and the overall offensive would have a better chance. Who knows? The 8th Regiment lost 234 out of the 300 men who charged. 154 of those were killed. The 10th lost 138 with 80 killed. And not a single inch of ground was taken. And their sacrifice made not a schmick of difference to the overall August offensive. And so with that, we'll move on to the last major piece of the fight, the attempt to seize Chinook Bear. You remember that last episode we left Brigadier Johnson, Major Templey and Colonel Malone and his New Zealanders resting after their exertions of the night of the 6th to 7th of August. Their objective was to take Chinook Bear, but it was supposed to have been in their hands before sunrise on the 7th. But the troops were knackered after a long haul up the slopes overnight. They decided not to attack that day, but Godley ordered them to. Templey knew this would be a bad idea, now that the sun was up and the Turks could see their every move. Johnson should have ordered his troops to attack the moment they reached their positions, but instead he had waited and waited for other troops which didn't show up. With the cover of darkness gone, Templey tried to convince Johnson to ignore Godley's order. But Johnson wasn't that sort of soldier. He was ordered to attack, and so he was going to attack. Simple as that. Between their current location, known as the Apex, and their objective, Chunuk Bear, was about 500 yards. The men would need to negotiate Rhododendron Ridge, which at its narrowest point would only allow about 100 men to attack at any one time, descend a small saddle which came up to a point known as the Pinnacle, and then cover the final 300 yards, all under the observation of the Turkish defenders. The Auckland Battalion was to lead the attack. Their commander, Lieutenant Colonel Young, had gone forward to have a bit of a squiz while they were waiting the order from Godley. Almost as soon as he poked his head above ground, he was fired upon. 
but he managed to have a bit of a look around. He knew it was an impossible task, and he told Johnson so. Young wanted to wait until night. Johnson said no. So the Aucklanders went. It was almost as brutal and tragic as the light horse at the neck. They were mown down. As Templey said, the leading platoon was simply devastated. About 300 Aucklanders were left out in the open, with only about 100 reaching the pinnacle, and there was still another 300 yards to go. Johnson had his blood up by this stage. You'd reckon the sight of an entire regiment being almost destroyed would give a commander a bit of a pause. But no, he was back there at the apex cheering his men on. He turned to Malone and ordered him to take his Wellingtons forward. Malone was made of sterner stuff than Young. He simply refused. There was a bit of a yelling match between Johnson and Malone, and when some of the Wellingtons moved forward to take their positions for the attack, Malone ordered them to stop where they were. He's reported to have told Johnson, We are not taking orders from you people. Wellington is not going up there. My men are not going to commit suicide. End quote. He stated he would take any punishment handed down. Now, it's not very often in military circles where a colonel tells a brigadier to get stuffed and comes out on the top of the argument. It gives a pretty good indication of the strength of Malone's character that it was Johnson who backed down. He sent a message to Godley stating that the attack had failed and Godley gave permission for the remaining troops to remain in place and have another crack in the dark. Two new army battalions were sent to reinforce the Kiwis, the 7th Gloucesters and the 8th Welch Pioneers. Johnson planned the attack for 4.14 the following morning, with the Wellingtons and the Gloucesters leading. The attack on Chalik Bear was halted for the day. Now during that day, Monash was still trying to find his way through the gullies, and the British at Suvla were still doing not a great deal. But they both had such little impact, one way or the other, on the offensive, so I won't bother wasting time describing their endeavours. Just be aware that during the 7th, while the Kiwis waited in front of Chunk Bear, there were other manoeuvrings going on. And of course, the fighting at Lone Pine was really just ramping up. At about 3am on the 8th of August, Colonel Malone woke to the sounds of artillery wishing the Turkish defenders on Chunk Bear a good morning. He gave his Batman a letter to post to his wife should he be killed, and then said goodbye. At precisely 4.15am, he led his troops forward from the apex to the pinnacle, trying not to step on the dead from the Aucklanders, and then pushed on up to the summit. They did all this without a single shot being fired at them. They arrived at the Turkish trenches to see just one machine gun, manned by a soldier who appeared to be about 70. He reached for his rifle, and so he was shot. That, and killing two sentries who threw bombs, was the only fighting in the taking of Chunuk Bear. The ground at the summit was hard and rocky, and so the Turks were unable to dig deep trenches. So when the barrage came down, they simply moved back down the reverse slope and allowed the New Zealanders to move in. As the sun rose, Malone caught a glimpse of what this whole campaign was about, the shining sliver of water known as the Dardanelles Strait. He was one of a select few Allied soldiers who ever got to see this vista. He didn't have time to sit and admire the view, though. He soon realised why the Turks had decided not to stay in the trenches. This place was going to be hard to defend. Not only was the ground hard, but what looked like a single peak from down on the beaches proved to actually be two smaller peaks with a saddle between them. So really, they hadn't seized the entirety of the summit. And to add to Malone's problems, the position was open to Turkish fire from Battleship Hill and Sazli Deer. They were actually being shot at from the rear. Sazli Deer should have been already taken, as should Hill 971. The Kiwis were in for a rough time. There's been much conjecture ever since that day as to where Malone sighted his trenches and whether they had any effect on the events. 
but in my personal, uneducated opinion, the location of the trenches is a moot point. Wherever he cited them, I reckon the result would have been the same, so I won't bore you with the details of that debate. By 5am, the Turks were beginning to make things difficult. Snipers from in front and behind were picking off the Wellingtons almost at will. The ground was too hard to dig down very far, leaving the men largely exposed. The Gloucesters, who had come in on Malone's left, seemed to have decided that they'd rather be anywhere else at that point in time, and they broke. An hour and a half later, and the fighting was on in earnest. After being released from a POW camp in 1919, Private Reginald Davis recalled, A Taranaki man named Sergener was the only man left firing besides myself. Private Sergener was hit in the head somewhere, but kept on firing with his face streaming with blood until he got another hit in the head, which dazed him for a time, and knocked him back into the trench. This time I thought he was killed, but he partly came to soon after and loaded rifles for me to fire. At that time, I was using three rifles and each was burning hot. End quote. The Turks soon reached Davis's and Sergeant's position, and after a brief struggle where Davis received a bayonet wound to the arm, both men were taken prisoner and spent the next three years as POWs. While this fight was developing, Johnson and Templey were back at the pinnacle, in relative safety. One officer, Captain Ernest Harston, tried to make it back to the pinnacle to bring forward reinforcements. He came across a signaller on the way and so phoned Johnson. He said that he had the greatest difficulty in convincing Johnson that the casualties on the summit were heavy. You would have to think at this point that Johnson must have been losing the plot. All around him and in front of him, all the way to the summit, the ground was strewn with dead and wounded men. And yet, apparently, he didn't think Malone was suffering heavy casualties. Templey did say at some point later in the day that Johnson was no longer in a condition to exercise command effectively. You can make a pretty good argument that Johnson had not been in a condition to command effectively since the whole thing started. Anyway, on the right of the Wellington's position, the troops had managed to capture a trench on the downhill side. As the Turks moved forward over the crest, the Kiwis' first glimpse was of their heads. As Private Nicholson said, heads were our target. The Turks came on and soon the battle devolved into hand-to-hand fighting. Private Nicholson described it. I don't remember any charges. It was all stand and defend with the bayonet. Just a mad whirl. In the back of my head, I could hear the words, get the bastard before he gets you. Get him or he'll get you. I don't remember bayonets going in. Perhaps I shut my eyes. I don't know who I killed and who I didn't. The Turks were heaving bombs at us too. It was hot, hard and thirsty. It's only when your tongue actually rattles in your mouth that you can say you're thirsty. That's no fable. Actually rattling around in your mouth. We stripped off our tunics and we were fighting in singlets and in the buff. The Turks were the same. Soon it was so you could only identify a Turk by his hat, his whiskers and his swarthy complexion. End quote. You get the idea. Soon the trenches were so full of dead that the living had no choice but to stand on them. The ground all across the summit was now a dullish red-brown from all the blood that was soaking in. And it wasn't much better for the Turks either. One Turkish soldier stated... All the officers are killed or wounded. I do not even know where I am. I cannot see anything by observation. I request in the name of safety of the nation that an officer be appointed who knows the area well. End quote. The reason this man, and presumably his comrades, didn't know where he was is because they had been rushed up to the area from Cape Hellers. If you remember from the first episode of this series, an Allied attack had been made at Hellers, allegedly for the purposes of keeping Turkish troops down there. Obviously, that ploy had failed dismally. 
Fortunately for the Turks, one man did arrive on the scene who knew what needed to be done. It was the same man who had played a large part in halting the landing back in April. None other than Mustafa Kemal. He contacted von Sanders, commander-in-chief on the peninsula, and told him the situation of Chunk Bear was extremely dangerous. The conversation went something like this. Kemal, there is one moment left. If we lose that moment, we are faced with a general catastrophe. Von Sanders, what should be done? Kemal, the only remedy is to put all the available troops under my command. Von Sanders, won't that be too many? Kemal, it will be too few. So late in the evening on the 8th of August, Kemal was given command of all Turkish forces from Suvla to Sari Bear on the southernmost point of Anzac. And the Kiwis' fates were sealed. Throughout the day, Malone was moving about among his men, offering little bits of encouragement, but the fighting was hard and desperate and the casualties just kept piling up. He led one bayonet charge and a bullet struck his bayonet, bending it. Malone decided that it must be a lucky bayonet and so he kept it on him. But at 5pm, Malone's luck ran out. It wasn't a Turkish bomb, bullet or bayonet that got him. It was a poorly aimed shrapnel burst from one of his own supporting warships. An officer who was present said that he heard the swish of the shrapnel and saw Malone collapse into the arms of another officer. He was more than likely dead before he touched the ground. Malone was possibly the best battalion commander the Kiwis had on Gallipoli. He had fought bravely and cleverly and had led them from the front and kept his troops fighting. But for his actions on Chunk Bear, he received no commendation. Nothing. Nada. Not a sausage. Maybe his argument with Johnson earlier in the day had something to do with it. The battle continued to rage. One more death was never going to make it stop, no matter how courageous the man had been. But as darkness came on, the fighting died down. 760 Wellingtons had gone into the battle that morning. As the sun set, only two officers and 47 men were still unwounded. The Welsh, during their part in the fight, had lost 417 men, and the Gloucesters 350, including every officer and sergeant. The wounded were everywhere. But how do you get hundreds of wounded men down a narrow rocky path while fighting is still going on, with a woefully inadequate number of stretcher bearers? Some men took three days to be gotten down to the beach. Obviously, many died waiting. But it wasn't over. Godley decided that they needed to attack again the next day. He thought about going for a look himself to see what the situation was, but decided against it. Instead, he sent Brigadier Baldwin, who had reinforced the position, forward to discuss the best way of getting the troops up to the summit with Johnson. Godley reckoned the best way was uprooted at Engine Ridge, like Malone had done the previous day. But when Baldwin arrived, Johnson convinced him that there was a better way. That way turned out to be a disaster, which I won't go into here as this episode is starting to get a bit long. On the 10th of August, Kamal ordered his men to charge the small number of New Zealanders still holding on at Chunuk Bear. And there's not much more to say from this point. The reinforcement, which Johnson had sent astray, were, at that time, settling into the farm, in no position to provide support to the beleaguered Kiwis. The Turks came over in an avalanche of soldiers and basically swept the Wellingtons away. They then continued to the farm and utterly destroyed Baldwin's force. In that one quick, brutal and unstoppable assault, all hope for success of the August offensive was snuffed out. Without possession of the heights, the outcome of any other fighting around Suvla and Anzac was basically academic. The battle was lost. The only gains had been the small position of Lone Pine and a few hills around Suvla which on their own were useless if the Turks held Chunuk Bear. 
Defensive had seen some mind-blowingly courageous fighting and sacrifice, but it had also showed just as much mind-blowing stupidity and failures in leadership. What had started off as just a localised plan from General Birdwood to seize a small, achievable objective had resulted in thousands of casualties for no real gain. From this point on, any small flicker of a chance that the Gallipoli campaign could be brought to a successful conclusion had been shattered, but it would still take nearly four more months and hundreds more casualties before the fiasco was finally brought to a close. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.